and welcome to the X-Men Unraveled podcast, which follows the X-Men stories in chronological order. I'm Noelle, and today I'm continuing the story of Namor the Submariner. Last episode, I covered the origins of Atlantis and how Namor the half-mutant, half-Atlantean prince came to be. He was born in about 1921, and today I'm going to cover the events of his life up until about the late 1930s, focusing on his childhood and emergence of his mutant abilities. Originally, I had planned to do just two episodes about Namor, but there are a lot of important stories to cover in his early life, and I have covered every other mutant in detail, so Namor would probably not appreciate being treated any differently. And to be honest, his stories are actually pretty fun, so I've enjoyed reading all of them and just wanted to include them in the pod. Before I get started, though, I have to mention two other podcasts. I was so happy to get my outline done last episode uh, because it was kind of a pain in the ass to write that I completely forgot to tell you to go listen to Marvel Plus, a show about the MCU Disney Plus shows. I got to guest on a roundtable discussion of the Loki series. I absolutely loved the show, and I had so much fun getting to chat about it, so definitely go check that out. And right now, the pod is covering the What If series, so check out the other episodes, too. It's a really fun podcast if you're enjoying all of the shows. Again, it's Marvel Plus, so go give it a listen. Second, I got to be part of Grey Malkin Lane, a podcast that covers the X-Men comics, as a juror for A Trial of Charles Xavier. It was a blast. We judged various actions of Charles Xavier on whether they were justifiable, pure evil, or somewhere in between. There were some amazing guests who knew so much about the X-Men, and I was just really lucky to even be a part of it. So go find Grey Malkin Lane and see if you agree with our assessments of Charles Xavier. And the other episodes of the pod break down individual comics, um, working through the 1963 issues right now, um, and it's a really fun listen. So definitely go check that one out as well. All right, back to Namor. He is a unique character among those that I've covered in the show. I've gone over the stories of mutants, regardless of whether they're the villains or the good guys, but they've all had strong ties to the X-Men so far. But Namor, until very recently in the comics, has not been aligned with the X-Men or very personally connected to other mutants in general. That's because although he has a human father and is a mutant himself, he's first and foremost an Atlantean, and an Atlantean royal at that. So his stories generally happen separate from the X-Men, although they do meet later on and interact. Namor is more of an anti-hero in the comics because the interests of the underwater Atlantis are often in opposition to the surface world. And even when Namor learns of his genetic connection to other mutants, he really doesn't relate to them. They're still surface dwellers. So for the most part, Namor prefers to be on his own side, which I think makes him a really interesting, fun character. I've been so surprised at how much I've enjoyed the stories about Namor. Like I said last time, he's not a character I gave a whole lot of thought to in the past. So this has been a fun way to correct that. But even though he's not an X-Man for most of his life, he does have the X-Gene inherited through his human father, so I think he deserves to be covered in an X-Men podcast. So let's get into the early life of Namor the Submariner. My name is Brett Scott, and I am the host of Marvel Plus. What's Marvel Plus, you ask? 
Marvel Plus is a companion podcast for the Disney Plus Marvel series. Each week, a special guest co-host and I will recap, break down, and review the latest episode of the MCU-connected Disney Plus series. And we dig deep. Along with discussing the episode of the week, we explore fan theories, dig into the comic book source material, and speculate on how the current story ties into the bigger picture of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you love the MCU, you will love this podcast. Add Marvel Plus to your favorites and get new episodes every Monday. In Saga of the Submariner number 2, we get glimpses into Namor's childhood growing up as a half-human, half-Atlantean prince. The earliest picture we see of him is when his mother introduces him to the Atlantean court. He's still a baby, and there's a panel of him swimming around in front of the Emperor of Atlantis, and it's actually a really cute picture. But not everyone in Atlantis was happy about Namor's introduction and his royal status. He's the son of Fen, who is the daughter and heir of the core emperor of Atlantis. This makes Namor second in line to the throne after his mother. Many Atlanteans made comments that they would not accept a quote-unquote half-breed someday inheriting the throne. Some of Namor's own family took this line as well. His own grandfather, Emperor Thakor, occasionally expresses doubts because of his lineage. And there's another boy about the same age as Namor named Bira who some thought should be the rightful heir in place of Namor. Bira's exact relationship to Namor is a bit confusing. He's at different times called the stepson of Emperor Thakor, and at other times his grandson. So way back in Marvel Mystery Comics from 1941, an Atlantean named Daka was said to be one of Namor's uncles and the father of Bira. But later writers revised this, and Daka got demoted and pretty much written out. Instead, he's just some regular Atlantean. But Daka has a son with another Atlantean named Bryn, and she becomes more important to the story. Bryn and Daka have a son together named Bira, and after Daka disappears from the storyline, Bryn goes on to marry Emperor Thakor, Namor's grandfather. After the marriage, Bryn believes that her son should be the rightful heir to the throne because he is a full-blooded Atlantean. It doesn't matter to her that Bira is just the Emperor's stepson, and so she starts promoting Bira as a possible heir to the throne rather than Namor. And she encourages Bira to believe this as well while he grows up, so he comes to see Namor as a competitor for the throne. The two boys grow up together, and they're kind of friends, probably more like frenemies, but Bira and Bryn's plan for the throne leads Bira to antagonize and bully Namor most of the time. In a real Game of Thrones kind of way, Bira actually kind of tried to kill Namor when they were about 10 or so. The two were playing with another friend in a game they called American Invaders vs. Atlanteans, obviously a reference to Namor's father and his expedition to the South Pole. Um, and they're playing in a little boat that was floating in an open patch of water, like a little pond surrounded by the Antarctic ice. Uh, but they start arguing when Bira wanted to be the American captain. Namor was upset because he's half American through his father, so he wants to play the American in the game. And that just 
really took me back to so many dumb little arguments when I was a kid. Not getting to play the part in a game that I wanted was always such an unforgivable tragedy. So I really relate to this move by Namor. He decides not to play with Bira since he can't get what he wants, and then he climbs out onto the ice to play alone. After he leaves, the hole in the ice starts closing up. Maybe it's getting dark and colder than in the daytime. And Bira goes back down into the ocean, leaving Namor behind, trapped on land. But Bira doesn't tell anyone what happened. I mean, best case scenario is he didn't know that the ice closed up all the way. Or maybe he was just afraid of getting in trouble. Uh, But in the darkest version, he was hoping Namor wouldn't survive and he'd get to take his place as heir. No matter what Bira's intentions were, Atlanteans cannot survive outside the water long, so it's pretty dangerous for Bira to just keep that information to himself and not make sure that Namor returned. Eventually, Fen, Namor's mother, realizes that he's missing and gets suspicious when she sees that Bira is back from playing already. So she grabs Bira and demands to know where Namor is. After probably a couple of threats from a very worried mother, Bira reveals that he left Namor behind outside the water. Fen sends a search party, but by this time the ice has frozen over completely solid and they have to break their way through to get to Namor. Namor ends up trapped on land for a full day before they manage to reach him. When the Atlanteans do finally find him, they see him lying unconscious on the ice and assume the worst. Fortunately, he was actually just taking a little nap around some seals also. And this is the first sign that Namor has different abilities than other Atlanteans. Until this point, he just looked different because his skin wasn't blue like everyone else. He has pale white skin. Even with this new ability, however, Namor still spends most of his time below the surface in Atlantis. And they are below Antarctica, so there's not much excitement there anyway. The seals was probably about it. As Namor got older, though, more abilities appeared. When he was a young teenager, he was already stronger than adult Atlanteans, who are themselves much stronger than humans. And when Namor is 14, he gains a brand new surprising ability. He and Fen one day are walking around on land in Antarctica. They're discussing Namor's life and abilities, and Namor keeps asking her to tell him about his father. Fen is reluctant to do so. It honestly could be just that she doesn't know much about him. She wasn't with Leonard Mackenzie for that long and definitely doesn't know much about where he came from other than he lives on the surface. She does tell Namor, though, that his abilities are something new because his father was just a regular human. No special powers. But while they're talking, they feel the ground start to shake and a giant crevasse opens up in the ice and they both start falling. Fen falls tens of feet into the ice, breaking one of her legs when she hits the bottom. Namor falls as well, but he's somehow able to land gently at the bottom of the ice, completely unhurt. He picks up Fen, planning to climb up and carry her to safety, but he makes one jump and is able to somehow get all the way out of the crevasse. He doesn't know how, and he leaps into the air again and is able to fly up into the air and take Fen back below the surface for help. At first, Namor is too worried about Fen to really think about what happened or what he did, but after she's bandaged up, he's talking to her, and Fen notices that he has a pair of little white wings coming out of each ankle, and these wings give Namor the ability to fly. It doesn't make much sense and looks a little bit silly, but despite his new odd wings, Namor is pretty excited to be able to fly, and honestly, it's a fair trade. 
If I could fly, but I had to have silly little ankle wings, probably not going to say no to that deal. So Namor's super strength and ability to fly are the first signs that he is something different than either an Atlantean or a human. He doesn't know it yet, but these powers come from his X-gene, which makes him a mutant. We also meet two other characters from Namor's life in Atlantis from Saga of the Submariner number 2, Dorma and Aquaria Neptunia. Dorma is an Atlantean girl of distant relation to Namor. She's usually called Lady Dorma, so she has some sort of noble lineage. And she lives in Atlantis and takes part in some of Namor's adventures later on. When we first see her, she has a pretty obvious crush on Namor, but he's still at the age where he doesn't really care about girls, so he usually ditches her to play with the little asshole Bira and some other boys. We'll see more of her soon in another story I'm going to cover, so I just want to briefly mention her for now. But Aquaria Neptunia is another Atlantean girl that Namor meets in his childhood, and she has an interesting publication history and story. According to CBR.com, after Bill Everett created Namor, he left his comic career to serve in World War II. After the war, he took some time to settle back into life before eventually returning to comics, but in the meantime, the story of Namor passed to other writers. During Everett's hiatus, the character of Aquaria Neptunia was introduced in Marvel Mystery Comics number 82 in 1947, obviously with no input from Everett. And in that issue, she basically plays a pretty damsel in distress for Namor to rescue. She introduces herself as Aquaria Nautica Neptunia, but says that since she and Namor are teaming up, he should just call her Namora. And thus enters the most obnoxious thing to me. She essentially gets stuck with the name Namora going forward in any other comics. Aquaria is way cooler, and that's what I really wanted to call her in the episode, but she is always called Namora in the comics. She's never able to get rid of it, so I'm gonna stick with that as much as I hate it. Um, it's really dumb and worth remembering that it's men who wrote the story and thought it was just cool to name her after Namor, even though at the time she's introduced, they're basically the same age and there would be no reason to do so. And her name gets dealt with just about every time she shows up in a story because it's so fucking awkward to have her named after Namor. It's definitely an issue across comics that female characters get introduced as the female version of a male counterpart rather than getting their own unique identities, and Namora unfortunately fits that category perfectly. Anyway, she did get her own series for a while titled Namora in 1948, but there's only like three issues. Later, Everett returns to take over the Submariner comics and he rewrites Aquaria's story in Submariner Comics number 39 in 1955. So she arrives in Atlantis when Namor is 15, and Fenn introduces her to Namor, saying that she is a cousin. She introduces herself to him as Namora, saying that her father named her after him. Prior to this, they had not been cousins um, established in the storylines. But after he meets her, Namor is being a little dick and says that he doesn't want to hang out with her because she's a girl. Uh, later in the story, Namora is able to rip off a section of a sunken submarine, and that is the first sign that there's something different about Namora, and she gains some respect from Namor. Saga of the Submariner number 2 picks up Namora's story again in 1988, but with new writers. The issue tells a pretty similar story of their meeting, but this time, Namor quickly accepts Namora as a friend because she's just about as fast and strong as he is. 
Then, in Saga of the Submariner number 6, Namora has changed from having blue skin like an Atlantean to having pale white skin. She tells Namor that her father revealed that he fell in love with a shipwrecked surface woman, and so she is half-human as well. Then, Agents of Atlas number 7 from 2009 expands on this further. Content warning that this section will mention rape. It turns out that after Namor's birth, Atlanteans became interested in creating more Atlantean-human hybrids to help in their war against the humans. So they start a eugenics program. Just how every great story starts, right? Nothing bad ever comes from eugenics programs. Uh, the comic says pretty blandly that they abducted surface people to mate with them, which sounds like the nicest way possible to say kidnap and rape. Like, what a terrifying experience for those humans. These underwater people that you've never heard of just show up and kidnap you, and then I don't even want to get into it. Like, horrible. Horrible, right? But most of the attempts to conceive hybrids failed because apparently human and Atlantean genes don't go super well together. So they start doing genetic experiments to select Atlantean candidates for this horrible and terrifying program. Namora's father, who has no name, was apparently one of those candidates. And the Atlanteans abducted an Icelandic woman, also no name given, and we can assume that through rape she gets pregnant. The woman, conveniently for the story, dies in childbirth, but the Atlanteans have a new baby, human-Atlantean hybrid, and that is how Namora comes to be. A little different than the earlier story about her parents falling in love, but at least it gives her name a little bit more context. I can not justify it because that program is terrifying, but at least it makes sense. Like, she came to be because the Atlanteans learned that humans and Atlanteans can have hybrid children. The experiment and the whole program was kept secret, and at first the Atlanteans thought that uh, Namora was a failure because her skin was blue and she didn't initially show any special abilities. But as she got older, that started to change, and she now looks like a blonde white lady, and she also started developing her own powers, which of course are almost identical to Namor's. She's stronger than other Atlanteans, has super speed and durability, and can also fly. And that's why I wanted to cover her story, because she is a mutant as well. So that's why Namor and Namora are the only Atlantean mutants, because only they could have inherited the X gene from their human parents. Um, the Atlantean species Homo mermanus is completely separate and don't have the X gene for those mutant abilities. And Namora shows up pretty regularly in Namor's stories as well, so I'm sure we'll see her again later on too. When Namor is about 17, we see one of his first major adventures. He ends up getting sent on a diplomatic mission to the home of a group known as the Skarka, which is another group of Homo Mermanus who lived separate from the Atlanteans. And this story comes from the King in Black Namor series from 2020. You might remember the Skarka from the last episode as the nomadic people that attacked Atlantis in 1847, destroying the city and causing the Atlanteans to relocate to the South Pole. By the time of this story, it's about 1938, and the Skarka are living in the Oreki Reef, but where exactly that is is hard to say. They're still nomadic and migrate to different areas during different times of the year, and the Skarka by this time refer to themselves as the Chasm People. 
as they would inhabit deep chasms in the ocean. Pretty straightforward name. At the time of the story, the Atlanteans seemed to have forgiven the Skarka their destruction of their ancient home, and Emperor Thakor wanted to sign a treaty with them to have them join the Atlantean Empire. He sent a delegation of important Atlanteans, including Namor and his distant cousin Lady Dorma, who I mentioned earlier. And one night there's a large banquet, like a big party, as the negotiations are progressing and the chasm people want to show off their wealth and advancements to the Atlantean visitors. The Atlanteans previously looked down on the chasm people as barbarians for their nomadic way of life. So I like to look at the party as a big fuck you guys were awesome to the Atlanteans. But not all of the chasm people are in support of the proposed treaty, and a large group attacks the party to try and prevent it. A group of warrior women known together as the Swift Tide lead the fight against the attackers. This group is a bunch of cool ladies with awesome powers, but I don't have time to go over them in detail, and they're not mutants, so I don't have an excuse to do so. But they're led by a renowned warrior named Karsa, and these women are such badass warriors that they're known throughout the underwater realms. In fact, when Namor gets to meet one of them, he was obviously starstruck, which is pretty fun to see from the prideful Namor. But Namor and Dorma join in the fight alongside the Swift Tide and other Chasm people, and altogether they're able to defeat the rebels. After the victory, the leaders of the Chasm people and Atlantean delegation meet to discuss the attack. Namor is brought to meet with King Atukar, leader of the Chasm people, in recognition of his bravery in the fight. Atukar announces to them that his best warriors, the Swift Tide, are going on a quest to find a powerful object known as the Unforgotten Stone. The stone contains the souls and malevolent power of beings known as the Great Old Ones, and they lived thousands of years in the past and faced the Atlanteans in numerous battles. When the Atlanteans ultimately defeated them, they imprisoned some of the Great Old One's souls in the stone, so it contains immense power and evil energy. The stone, despite being called Unforgotten, was lost for ages, but the Swift Tide warriors discovered its location and are going after it. King Atukar invites Namor and Dorma to join the expedition alongside his son, Atuma. So they go with the swift tide as they travel across the ocean to find the stone. And the stone is located under the ocean near the city of Murmansk in Russia. Um, The exact location of the Ureki Reef where the expedition started is not specified. But whether it's in the Atlantic or the Pacific, this is a long-ass way to travel. But when they do arrive, humans are already working to uncover the stone's power. And we get a little glimpse of what's going on above the surface. So the Russians are the ones who've discovered the underwater stone and are conducting experiments to study it and harness its power. They have set up a base in a facility in Murmansk to carry this out. The Russian in charge is called Director Vajin, and joining him is our old hated Nazi Baron von Strucker. Because, of course, of course, that asshole has to show up literally everywhere. So they've got divers investigating the stone and using x-rays to examine it. While the divers are below the surface, Namor and the others reach the area. They see the divers but aren't sure if they're robots or not because of their large diving suits. This is about 1938, so think giant helmets, loose suits, and oxygen tubes. Um, And the group of Atlanteans goes toward the stone to investigate, but they're hit by a blast of dark, evil energy. Then the water has some sort of noxious element to it, 
Namor describes it as similar to things he would experience later in life, like radioactive waste. Uh, so the Swift Tide go to investigate the stone, and they make Namor, Atuma, and Dorma remain behind. Above the water in the Russian facility, there is some sort of effect from the stone as well. First, Baron von Strucker starts mumbling incoherently about cold and blood, and then the humans are attacked by a bunch of tentacles reaching up from the ocean. The Russians all seem to be killed, but Strucker and a German woman are able to escape. The tentacled creature brings down the facility and it crashes into the water. Namor, Dorma, and Atuma have no idea what's going on, but they can see a giant black cloud around the stone and feel an evil presence in the area. Then the swift tide emerge out of the darkness, but they have changed into monsters with immense power through their exposure to the stone, and they attack Namor and the others. The leader of the swift tide, Karsa, who now looks completely different, announces that they are now the black tide and will destroy Atlantis. They are just about to kill Namor, Dorma, and Atuma, but one of the other Tide members stops them. She says that the stone has infected the three of them as well, and eventually they will join the destructive goals that the ancient power has given them. So they leave the three unconscious on the ocean floor and speed off. When Namor and the others wake up, they first think they should go and get the stone, but they don't know how without transforming like the swift Tide did. But Dorma has a giant goldfish sidekick who's been accompanying them. He's named Ambrose, and he seems telepathically connected to her. And when he can sense that she wants the stone, he goes after it. And poor Ambrose is killed by the evil energy of the stone. And the three of them realize there is no way they can get it without being affected or killed. So they decide they need to get back to the chasm people as fast as they can before the black tide arrive to attack. Namor has Atuma and Dorma sit in the wreckage of an old boat and pulls them through the water because he's the fastest and strongest, and they make their way back to the chasm people. But by the time they arrive, they're too late. The Black Tide have already passed through, killing nearly everyone, including Atuma's father, King Atukar. Atuma is obviously devastated at the loss, and for some reason he blames Atlantis, saying that they were the ones who sent them on the mission. Which doesn't really make any sense because it was King Atukar, his father, who sent them, but it's hard to say whether it's the effect of his grief or the influence of the malevolent force of the unforgotten stone that's inspiring this thinking in Atuma. Either way, he refuses to have anything to do with Namor and Dorma when they try to comfort and help him, and he goes off on his own to bury the remains of his father. Namor and Dorma hear something in the rubble, and they find one of the Chasm People's sorcerers. He tells Dorma of a spell to relay to the sorcerers in Atlantis that will defeat the Tide members. She has her own kind of affinity for magic. She's been learning a little bit, so that's why she was the one that the sorcerer tells. Then Atuma returns and says that he will work with Namor and Dorma for now in order to get vengeance against the Black Tide. Because they were all affected by the power of the Unforgotten Stone, Namor and the others have a sort of connection to the Black Tide. They can sense where they are and kind of feel their intentions, and they know that they've gone to Atlantis. So that's where the three head next. The Black Tide arrives at Atlantis first, but a group of Atlantean seers were able to learn of the coming attack, so they are ready for it. And the Atlantean army is waiting for them, but the new powers that the Black Tide have allow them to bring bones of the dead out of the seafloor, and a zombie skeleton army starts the assault on the city. 
Then Namor, Dorma, and Atuma arrive during the attack. They start fighting, try to stop them, and Dorma attempts to use the spell that the sorcerer told her, but it doesn't have any effect, and the Swift Tide just laugh at the three of them and tell them that they have no power against them since they all share a connection through the stone. Then the Black Tide says that they'll be back tomorrow to destroy the city, which seems really dumb because they have all of the advantage right now, and there's literally nothing standing in their way. But... There would be not much of a story if they continued. They'd kill Namor and the others and destroy the whole city. So, it's just a plot device. Namor is with Dorma and Atuma. They're recovering from their journey, and then Emperor Thakor and Fen come to see them. An Atlantean warrior also joins them and says that they have no way to stop the Black Tide when they come back. Then they're interrupted by the return of the giant goldfish Ambrose. I don't know that he's goldfish, but he looks just like one. But... Even though Ambrose is alive, he's also infected with the power of the stone, and he has grown into just an enormous creature and has these really sharp teeth. He does look pretty terrifying. But Dorma rushes over to him, happy to see him alive, and then Ambrose just casually burps up the Unforgotten Stone. The last issue of the series opens with the battle between the Atlanteans and the Black Tide the next day. Namor, Dorma, and Atuma are not allowed to take part in the fight. They are back with Emperor Thakor. They desperately want to help, especially Namor because this is his home, but Thakor tells them that the battle is just a diversion and they need to be kept safe because the sorcerers of Atlantis are working with the Unforgotten Stone to figure out how to stop the Black Tide for good. But the sorcerers aren't willing to touch the stone because they're worried about being corrupted by it like the Swift Tide and Ambrose. Then, one of the sorcerers insults Ambrose and calls him a monstrosity, and that sets Dorma off. I mean, he's not wrong, but Ambrose is literally the one to save the day, so it's kind of mean. Dorma yells at them and tells them that they only have one chance to defeat the Black Tide, and it's because of Ambrose's bravery and sacrifice. Then she swims over and just picks up the Unforgotten Stone, and there's no explosion or reaction like when they first saw it and Dorma swims away with it while Namor and Atuma follow behind her. She takes the stone straight toward the Black Tide and then uses the spell that the Sorcerer of the Chasm People told her. She's able to manage the power of the stone and traps the Black Tide in an enormous crystal. But using the power has now corrupted her, and she looks completely different with sharp teeth and more monster-looking appearance overall and then she collapses from using all of the magic. Dorma wakes up three days later looking back to normal. Apparently, the brave monster goldfish Ambrose was able to drain all of the dark energy from her, Namor, and Atuma, so it wouldn't affect them anymore. And apparently, Ambrose is totally okay because he's so pure and good that he can't be corrupted by it. It's a little bit too happy of an ending, but I wasn't mad about it because, uh... Ambrose didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him, and I was pretty upset when it seemed like he died. So, it is what it is. Atuma, however, has left Atlantis. He still blames the Atlanteans for the deaths of his people and his father, so he goes back to rebuild what he can. Obviously, the treaty is now a non-starter. The Black Tide were not able to be saved. They were imprisoned in a deep rift in the ocean floor and banished and exiled from Atlantis. It's kind of a sad ending for these characters because they're pretty awesome and could have had some cool adventures to cover, but the stone basically turns them into villains and they're banished from the rest of their species. 
And that is where I'm going to pause and name our story for today. It's more than I originally planned to cover, but I really enjoy the comics with mystical elements like the King in Black series, so I didn't want to pass it up. And it gives a good picture of what the ocean world that Namor comes from is like. It gives context to who Namor is and why he doesn't just switch his loyalties to the surface world despite his human heritage. Namor is living and experiencing life in what amounts to a completely different world than other Marvel characters, and that's central to the role he plays across the comics. Next episode, I will get to his first real interactions with the surface world and his meetings with other characters uh, that I've mentioned from the comics so far. So join me next time to hear about Namor's life as an adult and his, at best, ambivalent relationship with humans and other Marvel characters. As always, I have to say thank you so much for listening. If you feel like leaving a review of the pod, that would be amazing. And if you have any friends who are interested or might be interested in the comics, word of mouth recommendations are always appreciated too. In the meantime, you can always check out my Instagram at X-Men Unraveled. I post pictures from the comics that I discuss and any other updates that I have in between episodes. So talk to you soon. And if you're into crystals like me, try to avoid the ancient corrupted ones. Bye.